Hello everyone and welcome back. Today on The Drew View, we will be talking about the bank collapses and the government's response. We're going to look at the new oil drilling project going on in Alaska, and we're going to be taking a look at some upset picks going into March Madness. I'm Drew Bennett and you're listening to The Drew View. Welcome back to the show. Before I get into anything, I just want to mention that in the last episode in my introduction, I kept saying watch and what to watch for and see me and things like that. And I'm realizing now that uh, this is only audio. You're not seeing any video. Um, I don't know why I was saying that. So my apologies. But anyway, we're going to get right into it. So we're going to be looking at the bank collapses and the government's response. Uh, this is going to be kind of a two part thing because the first part I'm going to be doing now. And afterwards, at the end of the episode, I want you guys to stay tuned because I'm going to be bringing my mother onto the show and she's going to be talking about these bank collapses as well. She has some experience in these areas because she was a CFO at a local community bank and she currently works for a local title insurance company. So we're going to be bringing her on and asking her a couple of questions and having her kind of dumb this down for people who don't understand that well, including myself. So I'm going to be completely honest. Uh, Me, myself, I don't know a whole lot about uh, what's going on, but I do know that, uh, you know, it's not necessarily the best thing in the world when we have the Silicon Valley Bank, uh, also known as SVB, and the Signature Bank of New York. Uh, Both have collapsed recently in the past few days. Uh, The SVB was the 16th largest bank in the U.S. prior to its downfall. Now, Uh, One of the reasons why this is a big scare is it's the biggest financial institution to collapse since the recession of 2008. Uh, It's very scary because, you know, you look back at those times and we're starting to see more and more similarities between that 2008 collapse and what we're seeing today. So just something to keep an eye on kind of, you know, as we go through and we look at like history, I want to be asking my mom when she comes on later at the end of the episode, some of those questions. Um about like what the similarities are to what was happening back in 2008 and what's happening now. Are there things we need to be uh, looking out for? Are there some concerns that she has and kind of getting her perspective on that? Now, along with that, Biden had got on and said, you know, that uh, he said Americans should be uh, feeling confident in the banking system in America today. And while I would love to believe that, uh, there are some things that you just have to look to history for, and this is one of them. Um, when you look to history and you see uh, that we haven't made too many more policy changes that would change the outcome of uh, what a potential collapse would be, we really have to see when some similarities start popping up and we need to start recognizing those before they hit. I think that's really important. Um, not to fear monger or anything like that, but it is something that would be nice to be prepared for. But additionally, I did want to add that I was reading an article that Bitcoin and cryptocurrency sales have actually spiked uh, since Biden came out with that announcement. Uh, So it kind of shows that I think a lot of people uh, distrust what he says and uh, don't really take his word as truth, which is obviously how you should take every president um, and every politician. People do not always tell the truth. That's just the uh, fact of the matter. And I think that doing the research for ourselves is very important. Uh, So again, I'm going to have my mom in here in a little bit. She's going to talk about that. So be sure to stay tuned. She's going to have some great insight for you. 
Alrighty, so the next thing I wanted to touch on was a new oil drilling project that, that is going to be happening in Alaska. Uh, Biden just approved it. Uh, it's a massive oil drilling project where three out of the five sites that were proposed were selected to be a part of this project. Uh, they didn't include two out of the five sites because they wanted to reduce carbon emissions and, you know, some environmental reasons behind that. Um, uh, but Despite the fact that they did try and appease those uh, climate activists, they still had a bunch of climate activists objecting. And that's what I was always kind of confused about is there becomes a time when we have to start making uh, our own resources. We have to start, you know, using our own fossil fuels and we have to become energy independent because uh, even for the environment's sake, I mean, if we're going to still use fossil fuels, which we do, we're not just going to be able to wave a magic wand and get rid of them. We're going to be best served if we do that in America, where we can be more environmentally conscious than in some other countries. Like, do you really think that Saudi Arabia and some of the other countries that are a member of OPEC, do you really think that they're being environmentally uh, conscious and they're making a lot of environmentally sound choices and decisions with how they're going to drill that like no that's not what they're going to be doing and so if we do this in america while yes it's not going to be perfectly sound for the environment it's probably going to be better than what you can expect from places like saudi arabia and iran and other places like that um, i know that it sucks that we can't be perfect but i would rather it be done in america where we're going to benefit more from it uh, and also where it's done more in a place that is environmentally conscious uh, because we have so many activists, so many regulations, uh, so many uh, people that we're beholden to to make sure that we're making environmentally sound choices, it's going to end up being done better in America than anywhere else. So I, I think probably all five could have been approved, but uh, I think it is uh, a step in the right direction that at least three out of the five were approved. Uh, it's projected to produce about 180,000 barrels of oil per day which is about 614 million over the 30 years that it's uh, supposed to be uh, drilled for. And now I think, you know, it's a step in the right direction because we're, uh, you know, over the past couple of years, oil prices have been going up tremendously because we've stepped away from being energy independent. So I think that uh, taking a step in this direction, while uh, I think more could absolutely be done, this is a step in the right direction. And I will give props to President Biden for signing it, despite the fact that he's getting backlash from his own party, from far leftists like AOC and people like that. Now we're going on to the Top 10 Tuesdays segment, and this isn't kind of something that you will typically see, but March Madness, man, it's one of my favorite times of the year. I love college basketball. Um, I love all basketball, but college basketball especially. In this time of the year, it gets so competitive, and it's just one of the best times to watch sports, I think, throughout the whole year. Um, but I wanted to come on and give you a list of 10 teams that I think are your best bets uh, for upset picks. Now, I'm not going to count 8, 9, or 7, 10 upsets. To me, those aren't even upsets because the other, you know, the 7 and the 10 and the 8 and the 9 each of them went about 50% of the time. So that's not really an upset. I'm talking um, anything higher than that. You know, usually you hear about the 512 upsets or different things like that. So let me hit on that for a little bit. And then I will go into talking to my mom about the bank collapses once again.
one honorable mention I wanted to say was Holgate. Uh, if I were to pick a 15 seed to upset a two seed, I think it would be Colgate over Texas. Now, Texas, I think they really got screwed because uh, there were some people making an argument for them being a one seed, uh, but they ended up getting put in, I think, one of the hardest uh, probably regions to win. Uh, just for the first two rounds, I think that whoever they go up against, uh, if they do get past Colgate, assuming that they do, uh, whether they come up against Texas A&M or Penn State, I think both of those teams are going to be really tough for them. So I feel really bad for Texas. But anyway, so Colgate's my honorable mention, just because I think they're the best 15 seed uh, available. But that Texas team is really good. So I think the chances of that happening are pretty slim. Uh, but going on to number 10, I'm going to go from 10 up to number one. So going with number 10, I have UCSB, University of California, Santa Barbara. Uh, they are going up against the Baylor Bears. Now, I think Baylor's the sketchiest three seed out of them all. Uh, other than Xavier, except Xavier got pretty blessed with who they have to be going up against. But I think Baylor is going to be the three seed that gets bounced first just because they've been playing a little suspect recently. Um, I think UC Santa Barbara, they've been in the tournament quite a bit. I feel like I see them quite a few years jump into the tournament. So I feel like they have at least some experience because I know I've seen their name before. Uh, so who knows? Maybe this might be the year that UCSB gets a tournament win. On to number nine. I don't exactly know how to pronounce this team. Is it Iona? Iona? Gales. Uh, I think they are coached by Rick Patino still, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, but that team is going up against uh, the Yukon Huskies. Now, I think Yukon is going to win this game. Um, I just put this team on there because, uh, you know, with such a high caliber coach, I think that they are uh, always going to be a threat. They've made it to the tournament a couple of years, and they did actually upset a team uh, in years past. So we'll see if they can keep up that luck. Coming in at number eight, I have NC State upsetting Creighton. Now, this is probably not the most likely 11-6 upset that you'll see. Uh, I have at least one or two others uh, coming up. But I do think that NC State, they're in a good conference. They have an opportunity to upset uh, Creighton. It all depends on how good the Big East is this year. Um, you know, I haven't watched too much of the Big East to know whether or not they are going to be a team that has, you know, plenty of teams making it to the Sweet 16 or if they're uh, just, you know, a little bit overrated and they're all going to get bounced early. But I do think uh, the NC State has a chance at beating them. NC State also has some suspect losses. They, I think they've lost to Clemson like three times, uh, and that's a little suspect. The fact that you lose to the same team three times in one season is not usually uh, a good thing. But I do think that there's a potential there for an upset. Now, I have four 5-12 upsets on here because 5-12 upsets are really common. Uh, if you don't know, they're one of the biggest uh, picks for upsets, and they usually happen the most often. There is usually at least one, if not two, every single year. Uh, and this year, the one I have coming in at four, but uh, the upset that's coming in number seven overall is VCU over St. Mary's. Uh, for no particular reason, other than uh, a lot of people are picking this one, and I think sometimes the one that everybody picks is typically the one that doesn't happen. So, you know, a lot of people are expecting Duke and uh, San Diego State and Miami to get through 
Um, but not too many people are picking St. Mary's to win. And if they are, they're expecting them to get bounced in the second round. So why not? I'm just going to have uh, VCU here in the fourth slot for those 5-12 matchups. All right, then coming in at our number six upset is the winner of the Mississippi State versus Pitt game. Uh, this is being recorded before those first four games start. Uh, so I think the winner of that game has an opportunity to upset an Iowa State team. Again, the Big 12 is one of those teams like the Big East where we kind of have to see how good the conference is once we start getting to tournament play. Uh, you know, the Big 12 in the past has been uh, really solid. Uh, last year, they had the champion in Kansas. Uh, but we'll have to see. Iowa State is one of those teams where I could see them uh, going to the Sweet 16 or losing in the first round both very easily. Um, a lot of teams are like that this year, uh, but I really see that with Iowa State. So I do have the winner of that first four game uh, as my number six upset. And usually in the past few years, a first four team has gone on to play, uh, do a little dance in March Madness. Before I talk about this next one, I did want to tell you guys a little bit about how I did these rankings. Uh, and one of those things is I put upsets that are bigger upsets, uh, you know, upsets that are like 13 over four or things like that. Um, I put those higher than upsets that are like 11 over six, typically. Um, so you're going to see more uh, intriguing upsets toward the top. Um, I kind of did a mix of uh, how likely they are to happen as well as how interesting they would be if they happened in terms of how big of an upset they would be. So. I wanted to say that before I tell you my next one, because uh, you're going to see why here in just a second. Because at number five, I have Kent State beating Indiana. Now, it's not an upset that I think is uh, fifth most likely to happen, but I think combined with the fact that it would be such a substantial upset, and I do think that there is a possibility of it happening, I have it here at number five. So Kent State, uh, the reason I have them beating Indiana is we just don't know how good the Big Ten is this year. They beat up on each other so much. Um, you know, there are so many teams in the Big Ten where it's like you think they're, uh, you know, the second best team in the Big Ten one night, and then they look like they're toward the bottom of the conference the next night. And it's going to be hard to tell, and it'll be interesting to see whether the Big Ten comes out and March Madness guns blazing and makes a good push as a conference and sends a lot of teams to the Sweet 16 or if they get bounced in the first round. So we'll just have to see. But that's probably one of the biggest reasons I see Indiana getting potentially upset by Kent State. Coming in at number four is a very intriguing one, and that is Oral Roberts. I'm really excited to see what Oral Roberts does. I think that they are going to be a super fun team to watch. They have a lot of their personnel back from the Sweet 16 team when they made a run for the Sweet 16 as a 15 seed. Uh, and as well as that, they added a 7'5 center. So it'll be interesting to see. Um, I know Duke had trouble earlier in the year with Zach Eady and Purdue. So we'll see if that continues and they lose to Oral Roberts. Uh, and I do see a good possibility of that happening. That's why I have Oral Roberts here at number four. Number three, I have Charleston. Um, I always think it's kind of interesting that they rank San Diego State so high because they've had a lot of high expectations in past years and they never really live up to it. So I could definitely see them being a team that loses to a 12 seed, especially a Charleston team that I believe only has three losses on the year. Uh, they're a very well-rounded team. I think they could make a push uh, come March Madness time. Number two, I have Providence over Kentucky. Now, Kentucky is one of those weird teams where 
you look at them one night and they look like one of the best teams in college basketball and you look at them another night and they look like a team that shouldn't even be in the tournament. Uh, that's kind of how I viewed Kentucky this year. Uh, and I think that could be good or it could be bad come March. They could make it all the way to the Elite Eight or they could lose in the first round. It all depends on what Kentucky basketball team comes out. And that inconsistency is why I have Providence upsetting Kentucky as my number two upset. And finally, number one is Drake over Miami. Now, this is another one that people are predicting, but I'm very confident in this one because Drake is a very veteran-oriented team. They have a lot of older players that have a lot of experience, uh, and I don't think that this Miami team is really uh, worthy of a five seed. I think that that's a little bit high for them. Uh, They have had a decent season, but I just don't see them making a very far run in March Madness. So if you do pick Drake and Miami does end up winning, I don't think you're going to be hurt too bad because I don't think Miami would make it much further than opening night. So that will do it for my upset picks. Um, I'm not an expert, uh, but I love March Madness. So uh, I hope you get something out of it and enjoy watching March Madness as much as I'm sure I will. All right, and now we're going to end the episode right where we started, and that's talking about the bank collapses that we're seeing. For that, I have brought my mom in here. Say hi, Mom. Hello. All right, so were you, in fact, a banker in 2008 when we saw that recession that we now call the Great Recession? Yes, I was in the banking industry from about the year 2000 until 2019. So we're going to talk about some similarities and some differences from what we're seeing today uh, and then what we saw back in 2008. But I guess we can start out with some differences. And one thing you were mentioning earlier is that the 2008 recession started a little bit differently than the bank collapses we're seeing today started. So how did those start back in 2008? Well, that was kind of a buildup of items that led to the 2008-2009 crisis. Uh, Lenders were doing a lot of risky type lending with housing, giving loans to a lot of folks who probably weren't qualified, but they were trying to make their money, their profits. So they were kind of stretching the limits a little bit. And then when the auto industry, General Motors and Ford had their big collapse and were filing bankruptcy, then that led to job layoffs, which led to people defaulting on their loans that were already hanging on by a thread. So then once everybody started defaulting on their home loans, then it was a snowball effect from there. Based off of the little bit of information that we do have, What do you think is the cause of the collapsing banks that we're seeing now? So from what I'm seeing, it's a little bit similar to the situation in 2008 and 2009, a little bit different. 2008 and 2009, it was more tied to subprime lenders making high-risk loans. And this time, it's tied a little bit more to the tech and big tech industry. Um, The Silicon Valley Bank and other similar banks, they have large client bases of tech companies and startup companies, and these companies deposit all their money that they're making into their bank accounts at Silicon Valley, and the banks, then they have to turn around and do something with this money to make money themselves, so they either lend it out or they invest it into different bonds. 
And so a lot of times, if you can't lend it all out, then you move what you can't lend out over to bonds. Now, as the interest rates are rise on the rise, then those bonds are now worth less. From what I had read somewhere, I think it said like their average bond portfolio was yielding them 1.79% versus like right now you can buy a treasury bond that's yielding about 3.9%. So as the interest rates are rising, tech companies are now harder up for cash flow and because their client base is down, so they're using up a lot of that cash that they have on deposit at the banks. And as their cash reserves and those balances and those checking accounts and stuff are going down, now the banks have to find a way to fund those accounts because they already took that money and invested it somewhere. Now these tech companies want their money. They're using it. They're like, oh, no, we got to get this funds, get some cash available for these people in their accounts. So when these deposit accounts start to shrink, then they have to start selling off their bond portfolio because there's a lot not. A lot of people refinancing right now because the home interest rates are so high. So nobody's refinancing. There's it's hard to get loans right now. Um, and so what they're doing is selling these bonds at a loss. And that led to mass panic when they announced they had sold all of these bonds at a loss. And the tech companies and their advisors are saying, hey, they're selling all this stuff at a loss. You better get your money out of that bank. So more and more and more people were taking their money out, which led to the bank not being able to provide all of the cash flow. All of this happened over like a 48-hour time span. Is that correct? Yes, it was mainly due to the panic when they announced that they were selling all of this bond portfolio at a loss, then all the word spread fast and they're like, get your money out. So one final thing I want to ask is how does the government's role in this uh, bank collapse compare to the ones of 2007, 8 and 9? The 2008-2009 housing crisis was more tied to um, clients and customers defaulting on their loans. So the banks were stuck with all of this real estate that people weren't paying their loans on, which led to a lot of those bank failures. And the FDIC insured clients' deposit accounts up to $250,000. Many times the failing banks were bought out or assumed by another financial institution. So then if somebody wanted to get their money out instead of going to Washington Mutual or the bank that just failed, it's been now bought out by, let's just say, Bank of America. And so they could just go there and get their funds out. The government's role at that time was more on financial reform and working with the banks to help their borrowers stay in their homes, make their payments, rewrite and restructure loans. So the bailout at that time was more not necessarily to help fund all the money that people are taking out, but to help subsidize or get these reforms into place to help borrowers. This time around, the run is more on the deposit side. People are taking their cash out and moving it, which is causing the banks to have their liquidity issues there. They don't have the funds. They can't sell any bonds to fund these deposits because they're at a loss. So when they can't get the cash flow for that, that's causing um, kind of a run on the banks with the cash flow. 
since so many of these companies are tech-based companies that are relying on these funds to make payroll, to pay their bills, the government has to step in and say, hey, all of your funds are going to be guaranteed and insured, not just to the 250, but all of them, because they don't want to have the clients or the customer tech-based clients scared and moving all their money. As you can imagine, if there was a big run on banks and bank failures that are heavily weighted with tech companies, you all know how reliant we are on technology and tech-based companies. If there's a failure of their banks, which causes them to fail, it would be a snowball effect like we've never seen before. So the government is trying to step in as quickly as possible to prevent that from happening so these tech companies can stay funded, have their cash flows that they need. Now, how that is going to be funded, I have no idea. And that brings up a really good point because Biden said that absolutely none of this is going to be shifted onto the American taxpayer, but it does beg the question, where is this money going to come from? So thank you very much, Mom, for providing that insight. Um, I know for me, I would have to go back and watch that another time or two to kind of fully understand it, but I think that's really helpful in kind of breaking it down and kind of seeing what's going on with the situation we're seeing with the banks. I also wanted to add that as smart as my mom is, she is not a or um, financial advisor or anything like that. So if she said anything that misrepresents any certain scenarios, that was absolutely not intentional. And she's just representing it to the best of her ability. And I thank her very much for coming on the show. All right. And there you have it, folks. Thank you for sticking uh, with me until the end. I know that was a little bit of a longer episode and a little bit longer than I anticipated, but that was some really valuable information that my mom provided and that I was hoping to get out there to you. So uh, I know it was kind of a little bit all over the place, but I just wanted to show you guys that while there are some similarities, there are definitely still some differences between what happened in 07, 08, 09, and then what's happening now. But it's definitely something that you should keep an eye on and that we will be keeping an eye on on this show as we move forward. I hope you gained something valuable from that episode. I'm going to close in prayer real quick. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day that you've given us. Thank you for another episode. I want to thank you for everyone who's listening right now. Thank you for bringing them here to another episode. Father, I just pray that you speak through me and allow me to say the words that will be a reflection of your will, Father. Uh, I thank you. I pray for wisdom for our leaders as they deal with some important financial crises. Uh, and just give our leadership wisdom in general, because we always need it. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, any of those, I uh, would just ask that you subscribe to my channel. You can also find me at thedrewview.buzzsprout.com. And if you go to there, click on one of the podcast directories that you use and make sure to subscribe to me there. I hope to see you guys tomorrow. And until then, stay blessed.